Welcome in to a hoon around the political economy with some other tragic in the press gallery. <laughs> uh, we've got Thomas Coughlin uh, back again on the car in his palatial accommodation, <laughs> having just been to a couple of press conferences in the Beehive today. No shortage of news, including the tech by a, now we understand, a man who is has been followed around by the authorities for quite some time. And luckily, we, we won't talk about that too much. But I am interested in particular to start with the um, debate about the elimination strategy. And you wrote a column for the New Zealand Herald a week or two ago, Thomas, and I've written some pieces for the Kaka, which have dipped our toes in the water of maybe maybe this elimination <laughs> strategy can't last forever. And tell, tell me about that column and what sort of response. The response, is fair to say, was in public, it was overwhelmingly negative. It was definitely not much <laughs> about my first experience of being cancelled. But in private, there was a lot of quite positive feedback, actually. And I think it's one thing, I think... One thing that's been interesting, I think, over the last, particularly this most recent lockdown, is, is it's forced political parties to think about the future a bit more. And it's forced political parties to just sketch out the roadmap a wee bit more. And I, I think a lot of people were, the Skeg report was fairly light on timeframes and detail, and it kind of had to be because you're dealing with a pandemic and, and no one really knows what the future will hold. So I don't think I don't think anyone's criticising him for, for that. But certainly that week, the Skeg report came out, the, the government came under a bit of fire saying, you know, this is meant to be a plan for opening up. And what we have really got a plan for is opening up to countries we already felt we would be quite likely to open up to anyway, and then no plan to open up to anyone else really. And it suggested um, that vaccination wouldn't really change much for a lot of the travel routes. Sort of. Now, that hasn't changed following the lockdown, but the government's been forced to really harden the line on the use of lockdowns to stamp out COVID. We will still use lockdowns to stamp out outbreaks, and every political party, well, the two major political parties agree that we're still going to use lockdowns, but the Nets and Labour are both sort of saying, well, these will be shorter, more tactical, probably more regional, which is great news for everyone in the country, apart from Auckland, because there's no such thing as a regional lockdown in New Zealand. That's right. There's, let's let's, there's move, let's move our international there's airport a, to Palmerston North. About the politics of this, which is that there's only so much locking down that people can take. And, and with vaccinations ramping up, which they weren't when the, when the column was written, but with, with vaccinations, it does sort of open up this different frontier in the political debate. You know, last year, it was lockdown or die. And this year, it's a wee bit different. It's, and certainly there are other things that we have to weigh out now, which is the large number of New Zealanders who will not get to see their families ever, really, if we continue down this road. We've got one of the largest migrations in the world most, uh, well, not most, sorry, but a large minority of New Zealanders are either migrants or born to migrants. They have large families overseas. As the situation goes on, the, having such a closed border becomes untenable for more and more people. I'm surprised actually <laughs> to see quite a bit of a kickback at that. People saying things like, oh, they chose to leave New Zealand. That'll teach them. They yeah, didn't stick I around here so like cruel. us. I know, it's so mean. Yeah. <laughs> what I wonder though is if we're all engaging in a bit of magical thinking here when we say that, and I understand why the Prime Minister is taking a hard line, but you don't want to be seen to be having any doubt at all when you're fighting the yeah. fight of your life. Locking down the country, you don't want to look like you're yeah. having second thoughts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but essentially, we have built ourselves this perfect cage where we make the bars harder and tighter. And what we have now is a situation where we understand that just one breach 
one positive case and we have to turn the entire country into a lockdown state. Because what I found most interesting in the last couple of weeks was the, the bit of paper the Prime Minister held up. The, the, white, the white piece of paper with the essentially the heat map or the cold map, the blue map, which showed that within two days, because you have to give people two days to rearrange their affairs, the number of contacts that sprinted around the country, like it was like uh, watching a metastasizing yeah. thing. Suddenly you had one case in Auckland and thousands of contacts already around the country. And it seems to me that the idea that you can somehow in the future have any sort of regional or targeted lockdowns and that your tracking and trace facilities will be good enough to keep up with Delta is a fiction. When overseas, mm. they've given up on tracking and tracing. Our own tracking and tracing system turned off the Bluetooth on the first day. Oh, <laughs> and oh no, the look on people's faces. That's right. How many? And so what we essentially have is we have to lock down everywhere at the first sign of a breach. When we have an outbreak, we basically have to turn off the tap for people coming into MIQ other than the most extreme cases because we need the quarantine space for our locally contracted cases. And then we have to squash it as hard as we can because the other thing that I found interesting the last couple of weeks is that study that went to The Lancet, which looked at what would happen if we had 90% vaccination in New Zealand and 10 cases coming through the border each day, which is perfectly reasonable. It's not far away from what we had before the um, lockdown. So 10 cases coming through the day, 90% vaccination, essentially thousands of hospitalizations, 500 deaths in two years. Our emergency care department simply cannot cope now. And we don't even, we've only got five people on ventilation or whatever the, the number is. It just seems to mm. me we've built the system where our emergency care can't cope with even small outbreaks. This Vax, this this virus is so infectious it overwhelms our contact traces and we don't have the technology to keep up with it. We have to lock down our borders so blinking tight that even people can't come home for weddings and funerals mm. and the likes. And when you look ahead next year, we'd have to get over 90%. And even the studies show our health system couldn't cope with an outbreak at 90%. And as we've seen in the last week, the vaccination rates for Māori and Pacifica, now that all the age groups are opened up, are awful. Just horrible. So I just think we're in this situation where we've, we think, oh, we'll just squash it again this time and we'll go back to normal like it was for you know the last nine months or so, where we've got the least restrictive uh, rules in the world. And then Hopefully we'll, we can avoid any more escapes from MIQ and uh, she'll be right. Once we get to a high enough vaccination <laughs> rate, we'll be fine. When actually we're in this perfect cage that we can't get out of without large numbers of hospitalizations and deaths or I think that's always been forever. a problem with that yeah. COVID. Mm. The COVID strategy has been, there's been no, there's been no sort of downside risk to not, to maintain the current strategy where other countries, you know, have been forced into vaccinating themselves into the positions that they are and and you know to be fair to the counter argument it's not a while while it's not abundantly clear that new zealand's elimination strategy is the, is the strategy for the future it's also not abundantly clear that the strategies of other the other the vaccinated companies are the other <laughs> who are faced with the covid world as many bad sort of as a forest of bad options and that certainly that lancet study that you mentioned i think 
I thought, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't read it before the show, but I think it was 500 deaths a year over over two years, they yeah. were reckoning, which yeah. the road toll is about 300 a year, I think. Yeah, it's awful. And then flu deaths are about 500. So certainly like that's, 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 that's 500 deaths that you wish you could avoid, but it's also not. It is um, a mortality rate that New Zealand learns yes. sort of with other parts of life. So but it's going to be really hard. Some it's some portion of the population could swear themselves with. Yeah, but it's going to be really hard for Jacinda Ardern sometime in you know March yeah. next year to stand up and say, "Hey guys, you know how I said elimination was the way to go, and how we have to protect all of our vulnerable communities." I've decided that we can let five hundred of them go in the next two years. Yeah, and I think it's why one of the most interesting things about New Zealand. David Seymour made a very funny joke the other day where he said, "Only two countries in the world are pursuing um, the elimination strategy." A communist dictatorship in China, <laughs> and obviously meaning we were the communist dictatorship, which is obvi- obviously a joke. But um, I think one of the one of the interesting things about the elimination strategy in New Zealand is New Zealand is now I think one of the only only sort of I think Taiwan has successfully managed to get on top of this virus again, which is a pat on the back for them. But New Zealand is one of the only democracies in the world that's managed to, to stamp this thing out, and it's really hard for a democracy where people would quite rightly cherish their freedoms and things to use tools like lockdowns to say right, you know. New Zealand's sort of turning into a benign, a benign, definitely benign, but a benign police state for a few weeks, fellas, to get this thing under control. It's very, it is a very hard thing to do in a democracy. And I think going forward, it becomes even harder because there are different populations for whom the strategy affects differently. Many New Zealanders, the, the median income in New Zealand is, is just under $60,000. Many New Zealanders do not travel overseas that much, do not have interconnected lives, do not like migrants. Many New Zealanders do not like migrants. And for many people, um, lockdown or, or the sort of elimination closed off strategy is not actually that terrible. But for, for many New Zealanders who either do travel, you know, travel travelling for fun isn't a sin. I think we've forgotten <laughs> we've forgotten that travelling for fun is, is bad, is bad, Thomas. Bad, bad, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but also, like, for many people, New Zealand is a very interconnected country. There are people who are born here, who have fallen in love with people from overseas who need to visit their partner's family or who live overseas and need to visit their own families. There are migrant communities. That, that polling that the, or the survey that the government did through DPMC that they published noted that I think that in particular that um, parts of the, the Indian migrant community were really struggling with the, this latest out, not this latest outbreak, sorry, but, but the, earlier in the year. And that was because the, the, the hardest border policy that was imposed was against India. And that was really hard for that, that community because you forget democracies are about, about collective decision making, but you also have to protect the rights of the minority. And, and minorities do have a right to a, fa- a family life. And a family life means that if you live here from any part of the world, you have some right to travel fairly freely to visit your, your family. And obviously you, you, that right is being balanced at the moment with the risk that you would bring a pandemic home that would kill people. Yeah. And, and I, you know, that's I think that's why on both sides of this elimination debate, I think there's been a lot of bad faith about both sides having significant downsides. I think at the moment there's on the pro-elimination side, which is where all of our political parties are concentrated at the moment. The pro-elimination side is obviously focused on the, on the mortality aspects of COVID and justifiably, but there, there hasn't been less acknowledgement of, of even a strategy to deal with the significant downsides of that, of that argument. And, yeah. and there are really significant downsides to elimination which aren't being addressed at all, I think. 
which is a shame. No, there's no real sort of um, cost-benefit well-being analysis that I've seen put forward to the government in any sort of yeah. um, analytical sense involving cost-of-life uh, measures or anything like that. Whenever I asked the Prime yeah. Minister about it last year, basically I was told, you just can't do that. One thing I have found interesting that I think is making the debate more relevant and pointed for the government is in the last two weeks in Australia, this debate's been forced on them. And of course, mm. it's now state versus state, mate versus mate on elimination <laughs> where New South Wales pretty much decided before everyone else we can't handle this we're dumping elimination once we get to 70% we're opening up Gladys Berejiklian has turned into Australia's version of Maggie Thatcher in terms <laughs> of uh, what she says and uh, Scott Morrison seems to be in there with her but I thought the most interesting thing out of Australia this week was Victoria essentially throwing its arms up and saying we can't do this anymore elimination just is too much for Victoria. I've got mm. brothers over there who are just desperate. All their communities are, you know, on the verge mm. of revolt after, because they've been in lockdown for nine months collectively or something. And uh, I yeah. think Australia is just plain exhausted. If you look at the polls, there's... Uh, I can see why Victoria's exhausted. Victoria's, yeah. I think they have had some of the longest lockdowns in the world, even when I scale up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you've got this interesting situation. We're watching this debate happening in real time in Australia where they've put a number, it's 70% for this, mm. and then 80% we open up the borders. And you can see the pressure is on the Prime Minister now to come up with a number. Judith Collins has said, the number is 70%. But that's problematic for her too, because the first question any sensible journalist asks is, so how many people... You exactly, no one wants to be. And again, like you say, every government in the world, every democratic government in the world has been able to say, we're opening up once we get vaccinations to this you know, level, because that means our fatality, mortality rate goes down from thousands and thousands and thousands to much lower levels. So it's a plus side thing. New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern is the only Prime Minister really, maybe Scott Morrison's in a similar boat, to be able, where she would have opening up and vaccination comes with more fatalities. So she's in a, in a unique position anywhere in the world where, where any kind of opening up comes with um, downside effects, more downside effects immediately than upside effects, frankly. Yeah, it's like um, so, a gilded cage. We've built this brilliant thing and we don't know how to get yeah. out of it. And that's it's going to be a really, it's going to be the topic for the next six months or so. Touch wood, we've managed to squash this one, but there'll be another one. What I found interesting, again, um, is that we haven't found the actual transmission point out of the Crown's pl mm. Crown Plaza. There's been two or three other border breaches where we never actually worked out exactly where things happened. We never really see any of them, frankly. Yeah. I think the point you make as well about this one is that the Delta variant I think, came into existence late last year, but it really obviously took off earlier this year um, in India. And since then, the MIQ system has been pummeled with Delta. We've had, obviously, that wasn't an MIQ breach, but we had the Wellington issue, and now we've had this. And you, you think this, this isn't just, you know, I think some New Zealanders would think we had one national lockdown last year, had another one this year, Auckland's had a few. Is that... Is that what we can live with for the next little while? Actually, with Delta and its high transmissibility, it does make those breaches through the MIQ system more and more likely. And if, 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 if this is what the threshold is for a national lockdown and the frequency of, of border breaches has increased because of Delta, then actually you're, you're looking at a future of many more lockdowns, which again, I think is important to stress. Every political party is now saying that the future is going to be shorter localised lockdowns if, if, if at all there are lockdowns. So no, no one in politics is saying that, that lockdowns are really going to continue in the future like they have done for the last two years. 
But it's magical thinking because it's clear from those dispersion maps in the first couple of days that our contact traces were overwhelmed. People did spread around. Luckily for us, mm. that super spreader event with the uh, church in Auckland, um, people were driving and not flying. If it had been a rugby test or something, you know, no chance. Yeah, it wasn't a rugby test that weekend, right? Yeah. Either then we're very, <laughs> that's very, very, we dodged, um, very lucky. We dodged some bullets, yeah. Hey, COVID, it's going to keep coming at us and we ignore it, but... Meantime, we now have some numbers on how the housing market did in the first week of the lockdown, which is the really important. And it shows that from the Tony Alexander, <laughs> Surve the Tony Alexander survey that there was an increased amount of first home buyer interest for those people who can get some money from their parents. And mm. also an increase in the amount of FOMO that real estate agents were, were seeing in potential buyers. Even though there, there weren't any open homes, um, the prices going through were strong. CoreLogic came out and said that house prices are still rising at a rate of 1.6% per month. That's double-digit house price inflation. That's in the middle of a lockdown. That's quite That's a crazy. Yeah. Right. We should make Ashley Bloomfield Reserve Bank up enough. This is my new theory. Oh, yeah. So he just changes the R. It's not the OCR. It's the R level. It's the R value. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, below one. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> below one. Just imagine. Give it below zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd quite enjoy it, I think, because yeah, yeah. as yeah, Director General country. of Health, he can't magic up a vaccine, but as the Reserve Bank Governor, he could magic up $60 billion. No worries. You buy a lot of vaccines with that. Yeah. So the housing market's still going strong and to the point where in the middle of all the drama today, the Reserve Bank just quietly announced that it's planning to tighten again LVR requirements for home owners this time. So not everyone. Landlords have obviously been tightened a few months ago. First home buyers are in there doing their best, but the Reserve Bank has said, okay, we're going to halve the amount of high level LVR lending that existing homeowners can do to try and slow this down because I get a sense the rate hikes we were supposed to be having later on this year may not be coming quite as aggressively or at all that yeah. uh, people were talking about. And I just uh, wanted to put, call up an interview that Janae Tibshraney, our fellow geek in the press gallery, did with Grant Robertson today in which she asked him this, and I'll be able to replay the clip because I am an audio genius not really, but here we go. Here's uh, Janae asking Grant Robertson about you know, what he'd like the housing market to do. And you've said you don't want to crash the housing market, but how much do you want to cool it by? Well, we certainly do want to cool the market, and that's been the whole intent of the policy. I'm not setting a, a percentage on that because there are a number of different influences on the housing market, some of which are outside the control of government. But it certainly is my view that prices remain um, unsustainable. So there is further cooling to be done in the market, and I believe the full impact of the policies that we've put in place will come through. But as you noted yourself, we've seen a shift away uh, from investors within the market. That was part of the tilting of the balance that we wanted. But obviously the Reserve Bank and ourselves continue to look at where we are and continue to believe we're in an unsustainable place and we will work on both the demand and supply sides of the market to achieve a more sustainable market. But the market is not going to be sustainable still or if house prices only increase by say 7%. You know, these prices are still super high, you know, around a million dollars or 800,000 depending on where you are for an average house. So why don't you target a slight fall in, in house prices given like any asset, they should go up in value and sometimes they should go down. That's just the way assets- And I do note, I do note in the Reserve Bank's latest monetary policy statement, they do see 
that occurring in, in, in their particular forecasts. And so I've never set out that as a goal. What I want to do is set the conditions for a more sustainable housing market for the levers that the government has, the Reserve Bank has its levers. And so that is continues to be the policy approach. The outcome of that, still by most people's forecast, is a significant slowing in the growth of house prices. And in the case of the Reserve Bank, it's the latest forecast, they actually see it going uh, to a drop. So there we have it, Grant yeah, Robinson. Where do you begin with that? <laughs> <laughs> so what he's saying is, I want moderated sustain and more sustainable house price, in brackets, inflation. So he's not saying I want house prices to fall. I'm pointing to some reserve bank forecasts that they're for, but that's not my policy. And that I'm not giving you a number on what house price sustained moderation is. And so he gives the impression with that beautiful phrase, sustained moderation, that he's doing something to actually cool the market when actually he's essentially saying, I still want house price inflation, just not double digit. And the the prime minister used the number 4% last year as something that was more sustainable, where we all know um, if you've got house prices at 10 times income and you have 4% house price inflation and 5% income growth, which is what we typically have, you're essentially saying there's no improvement in affordability for decades. Yes, yeah, so like it's, it's, it's a you know, single digit, if you do have single digit house price from the base that house prices are currently at, well, that's still quite a lot of house price inflation, yes. <laughs> isn't it? When the median house price is you know, sitting just under a million dollars, a million dollars in some cities, so a 1% increase in house prices um, is still uh, quite a lot of money. Um, but uh, he does. Uh, it's interesting. So it's great. Typically, great interview from Jimmy there, and he does dance around a, f- a few things where he's obviously saying he d- doesn't want to be the architect of a house price um, of a house of a, uh, a crash in the housing market, and um, that's because he's a sensible politician. No, <laughs> no finance minister would ever say that. But then he also doesn't sound utterly, um, utterly displeased with those reserve bank forecasts, which which do show house prices falling. Well, uh, next year, but increasing overall because it's they, they increased by what 10 percent and four by five percent. So, essentially, still. we're saying that net over the next three years, they're expecting house prices to rise five percent. Yeah, so, so <laughs> and, and they yeah. they horribly undercooked their last set of forecasts, as did the treasury. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's he just you, I guess there was this the uh. The Sharon Zoller piece this week, I think a few business outlets picked up on it. She gave a briefing to investors where she sort of said, well, the interesting test case with this economic recovery coming, you know, uh, from this latest lockdown is is how do you do an economic recovery, a demand-side economic recovery without inflating the housing market? And New Zealand economy, you've been saying this for a while, and it's going to toot your horn. The emperor has no clothes, really, when they, when they, you know, the emperor has no homes. Or too many homes, <laughs> but you—you you, know—the government takes a lot of credit for the for the economic recovery last year, and ah, certainly with wage subsidies and stuff, they should take some credit for that. Even though there are some issues around some of the companies that that claimed the subsidy and didn't pay it back, but you, you, if you take away the rampant house price inflation of last year, which which did feel a bit of this demand side recovery, then what are you left with? Is it really that great? And and and. Did the government sort of smash the glass that says create massive social inequality and ruin people's lives in order to save the unemployment statistic for a little while? And that, that was the trade-off that they made. And I think you look at these are some of the stories that I did. So there are two my own one happened two of yours. But some of the some of the some of the OAAs that we got back from before the, the lockdowns were quite 
transparent about what Reserve Bank's un- unconventional monetary policy would do to inequality, to asset prices. It's not rocket science. Everyone knows that, that low interest rates do create assets. And I think the government probably does need to, to be more accountable to the fact that that was a deliberate, the government and the Reserve Bank needs to be accountable to the fact that that was a deliberate policy choice that was made. Like it wasn't, you know, this wasn't like a shot fire, a tragic byproduct of the um, of the economic response, which is what they're kind of painting it as. Oh, no. <laughs> we had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the value of a billion home. Homeowners felt great. They switched to labor massive funding majority at the election and then they waited until I think April or May to, to, to unveil the housing package. Yeah. And fair play to Robertson, who does note that the house the housing market had there have been, you know, the, the the package unveiled earlier in the year appears to have worked. I think part of it is possibly just that this price has reached some sort of natural ceiling. They couldn't rise at the pace that they were rising. Well, they've still risen another ten percent since the March announcement. Um, yeah, so it, it worked it worked to slow the rate of the increase. Yeah, but I'm not, and I'm not even sure whether there's a direct impact here. I think possibly you, you can't really have we had some months where the increase was twenty percent. Yeah, no, it's um, really. the expectations are out of the bank, and no one's going to believe the Reserve Bank or the government when it says this is an unsustainable no. market. We've heard this before for fifteen years, and every time the the grown ups have told us this, we've gone, oh, okay, we'll see what happens. Bang, another thirty <laughs> percent. Oh, okay, I'm not going to believe them next time, and um, that's what the FOMO is about. They see mm. that we've just gone into another economic shock. The Reserve Bank, which was on the verge of pulling the trigger the day before <laughs> the, oh. this case, is now going. Oh, can you really see seventy five basis points of rate hikes in the next two months in the middle of whatever this lock? Down is. Okay. Personally, I, I can't, and I, I do, I do think it's quite. It'll be interesting the next OCR decision, which is what a month away. Yeah, it's just um, a statement too. It's not the full reforecasting set and monetary policy press conference. So I, I can see them doing exactly what they've done this time around. It's pretty clear that this, that it's pretty clear that this, um, this outbreak in Auckland's been quite serious. Although interestingly enough, um, the amount paid out in wage subsidy. There have been, I think, at one point, Grant Robinson said about seven hundred thousand jobs supported by the wage subsidy this time around. So about half yeah. the number of jobs so, that were supported last so time around. So it's definitely not as bad as the first lockdown, where if you've got half the number of jobs being supported by wage subsidies, but still, you know, this is the only way we know to save the economy is cutting interest rates. <laughs> the one that's it's like playing a piece of music with the score, and you 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 tingle the ivories the same way every time, and you've really got to. Um, you really got to be scratching your head. And I, I do have some sympathy with Brian Robertson. He's in the position now where he's the one who really has to make the call enough enough folks because this has been script for far too long. Yeah. But, Which politician wants to call the emperor um, naked? Yeah. And then you've got to say, well, so we're going to have this sort of helicopter money stuff, which, which I think is still fairly politically difficult and then productivity led productivity boom every productivity led recovery while every finance minister since the dawn of time has been saying that we're we're going to have a productivity led Um, boom and show me leverage tax-free capital gains any day and i'll be as the median voter for for any government (laughs) that does that and calling the emperor naked when the emperor has such lovely indoor outdoor flow and a, a, a beautifully renovated roof. It's just hard to see anyone calling time on that. And that's the guts of it. We've had stock markets all around the world reach record highs in the last week, even though Delta is savaging various economies and causing all sorts of grief. And everyone's going, well, weak economy just means central bank prints more money and I get richer. I'm not going to get off this train. Um, no, why would you? Yeah. 
And uh, so the Reserve Bank has uh, used the only tool it has really to slow the housing market down without increasing interest rates, which is to tighten the LVRs. Although one of the great things, there's some good news, and I, I always have to look for it because otherwise I wouldn't find it. Uh, and that's that's that we've got these great sets of building consent numbers coming through. And I think one of the saving graces of the LVR regimes and the new tax changes of the last year is that the government and the Reserve Bank have been careful to avoid imposing these limits on new builds. Mm. And uh, even the banks are starting to get their head around the idea that they can lend money to people who are buying new houses mm. that are off the plan. And there's an awful lot of these, not in Wellington, of course, but there's an awful lot of these medium density affordable <laughs> apartments being cooked up in Auckland and not on the really fancy golf courses but you know in some of the other places which is good news 42,000 um, building consents in fact in Auckland in the last year we had 11 consents per thousand head of population which is a record high for Auckland even higher than in the early 70s through the 50s and 60s which is great the rest of mm. the country is still doing eight which is about normal for the 50s and 60s and below the peak of 1974 when Norm Kirk went out there and and built a shed load of state houses. They're the ones. With that great housing minister, Roger Douglas. Is that right? Oh, good yeah, story. Yes, housing minister. That was before the. That was before he sort of had his flipped Damascus conversion. Yeah, but, yeah. That's that's before his moustache turned all grey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Hi, Roger. I hope you're enjoying the bad. podcast. Um, <laughs> so, so we'll we'll look forward to hopefully the supply shock eventually having some. It was certainly in Auckland that supply shop that that, that that the supply coming on stream is open in Auckland is fascinating. It doesn't seem to be it'll be interesting to see what it does to to, to values that you sort of, I feel like the the kind of emotive allure of a weatherboard home or a villa or something will will protect the, the villa belt. But certainly it, one would hope to see the, the value of new housing, dense housing decrease. Yeah, it's interesting. The rents are certainly coming off the boil. Our former colleague and uh, friend, Lipa Fonseca, tells me that, and his wonderfully informed partner, Tamfi, is always telling us that rents are falling in Auckland. And uh, yeah. I can, we can see, because we, like the rest of Wellingtonians, are desperate to get out of this hellhole <laughs> and move to Auckland, are, are seeing... Not at the moment. <laughs> That's well. That's that's why I'm campaigning to get rid of elimination. <laughs> no, I'm um, so hopefully that supply shock has some impact in the long run. Now, just finally for some more some more amusement, the National Party over the last couple of weeks, Judith has ha has been having her foot shot off, self applied and otherwise. Yes, um, I was going to say. I think I think she's been the one doing the shooting in my pride. Yes. So you had a fantastic report, and I'm not going to put you in chains and pull your fingernails out for the source, but and apparently a shouting match inside the caucus, and the, as a result, a couple of days later, Chris Bishop was stripped of his shadow head of the park leader of the house for the opposition that's quite a, a rejection and and then we've seen judith have a crack at indira naidu on the breakfast program mistaking him for john camp mistaking her for john campbell i think what do you think of how the nets oh, are going gosh. at the moment i didn't i didn't see that case of mistaken identity that was that's something <laughs> the story takes a takes a turn i mean the, the national um they're not in a good place at the moment. I think it's pretty clear that, that, that lockdowns, lockdowns are never good for the opposition party. It's that classic stuff. And even before then, I think they're really, I think they're, they're struggling with just that kind of confidence that you get when things are going well. I, 
I think that my my story was about the conversion therapy issue, mm. which National just imploded over. And watching him eat a rat in public, it's not very nice. I have a sort of argument that, that allegedly Judith Collins is making internally, which is that if you're in the if you're in the, in the cabinet, the goal of all these people is to get into the cabinet. You have to swallow a few dead rats and for collective cabinet responsibility. That's what's obviously in caucus it's the same. And this caucus took a position on this issue that the caucus had to uh, you know swallow. I was, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one because justice issues like this usually stuff around moral issues or and for some conservatives in the party issues relating to. LGBT are moral issues. That sort of stuff is given the conscience vote, so the Liberals and the caucus vote for and the Conservatives vote against. It's they the Conservatives in the caucus are arguing that it isn't actually unusual to whip the caucus on an issue like this. But I, I actually would probably side with the Liberals on this. I think it probably is in recent times unusual to whip the caucus on this because they and, were not whipped on abortion, they're not whipped on same-sex marriage. And they, when you choose to do the whipping you're essentially expressing a choice in public. And so it is mm. even more important. And it does look like punishing the losers and strengthening your position within a divided caucus at the cost of making yourself not very popular with the middle voter. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very... It was a, a very unusual call that they made. And I think they I, I think the caucus it probably, it probably does sort of speak to how detached some... Parts of the caucus are, it, it speaks to how detached they were that, that they thought this would play well. Like I was at the national conference a couple of days after that, that vote happened. But there were people, there were quite old, old people there who were wearing these these rainbow ribbons as a symbol of solidarity. And their message was, hey, my, my friends, my children might be gay, and certainly my grandparent, my, my grandchildren would come out like, there, there is this idea, and, and, and for some, that, that this is a fringe issue. But LGBT issues are not fringe issues, and they haven't actually been fringe issues for a long time. It's a very mainstream issue, and it's, it's it, people are equating to like um, to stuff like female genital mutilation. It's a sort of conversion therapy as a kind of form of mental abuse and torture in the way that female genital mutilation is a physical kind of thing. And national in the last in the last parliament, national came together with all the parties in parliament to strengthen laws around that, um, because who the hell wants to come out against? Uh, sorry, come out in favour of female genital mutilation. And in this case, um, National has this position that it supports banning conversion therapy, but has decided um, to vote against this particular law. And I think everyone everyone sees through that. And, and it's just, well, it's one of those sort of death by a thousand cuts things like this Indira Stewart um, interview on TV and said she was yeah. just, just in doing dozens of interviews every month, every week even. Some of them are tough. Those Hosking interviews are really tough every week that she admittedly she doesn't even anymore, but but they were they were pretty tough interviews. And then both of the both both Hosking and Adun came to those pretty prepared. And when it when when it was when it was tough, when the temperature turn, got turned up, Adun was very calm and just answered the questions and did her ten minutes and left the studio. And Judith Collins, she had what five minutes with Indira Stewart and just melted down. And you just, you have to have the temperament to, to be able to handle it and it doesn't go your way, you know? And then, and then digging down on social media, she didn't say, she didn't say herself that the, the interviewer had a political agenda, but I think she retweeted or national, the National Party Twitter account retweeted someone who accused that, made that accusation. You, you just have to have a bit of a thicker skin. And, and I think that, I'm sure to members in the caucus, and certainly, um, certainly to outside observers, you think if you be prime minister, people will not like you. Um, 
you people you're going to get some tough interview situations that's just part of the job and you can't lose your rag like that no um, so it's a, it's a judgment call thing and a temperament yeah. call thing you know especially about, in the middle of a lockdown like we are now we're just yeah. in the doing that up at the podium pretty chilled out pretty calm pretty clear that's a real contrast when just in the return is kind of when just in the return is, is calm and clear and, and, and control like that and Judith Collins very manifestly is not. The contrast is probably oh, more yeah. stark than it's been yeah. for I a mean, long time. I think it's a lot like that last week of the election campaign when Judith Collins oh. decided to, to be herself and it turned out the voters weren't thrilled with Judith when she really was herself. They didn't really like herself and this is the problem for a lot of politicians have this view which they need to moderate their true selves to make sure that they win the, the biggest number of voters but that their greatest wish of course is that if only the voter could see, <laughs> see me at my best <laughs> and that's that's the problem for Judith her instincts are to be herself but actually that's a problem because yeah the public can see it this is the great sad brilliant thing about television is that it's not really what you say on television that's matter. It's how you say it, how you look, and whether you're sweating or smirking. Or people actually are looking for what they think is character or sentiment or tone in, in television. I always find it hard with politicians and, and being their true selves because it's just it's so hard to know. I, I, I just It's something, it's an area that I just don't really wade into because I just don't know. It's impossible to, to gauge. It's so... It's such a funny kind of media environment like that. Where they try very hard to be whoever it is that they're trying to be. And it's, it's very hard to just sit on the sidelines refereeing, just return to someone who I've spent, I've spent more time with her than I do with appearance every week, <laughs> a lot of time that. following around. You know, and it's a bit it's, sad it's, too, because when you talk to your parents, they ask you about Jacinda, how is she? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. and, and, and you're obsessed about this person and you look at her and you get very good at reading her facial expressions and, and trying to gauge what she'll do next. You get quite good at predicting it, actually, just because of the sheer amount of time that you've just spent looking at, at her doing her job. And yet, even then, with spending more time around her than I probably do many people in my life, but I'm far closer to, it's, it's still very hard to really say what she like because it's um, they're very good at, at being whoever it is that they're trying to trying to be, and maybe that maybe she's like that, maybe she's not. Um, I think she's. she's it's uh, really impossible to achieve yeah, that. I, mean, I think because the, they're very good at the PM is the PM is much much better in those unguarded moments, and we've all you know seen enough to understand when she's under pressure and what she says. And those moments, and she had a bit of one of those moments this afternoon when she had to write again one of those they are us. Um, oh, yeah. speeches which when we found out about it was a something she scribbled on a piece of a4 in 30 seconds or whatever it is mm. before going onto a podium you don't that's a real thing i've got the line on my phone uh, actually here it was just, it was just another moment of her it's when you it's when you when you can see why she is prime minister because she does have this habit of saying the right thing mm. almost the perfectly right thing at the right moment which other people just don't yeah have. she is quite tone Quite, tone, quite good like that. So it was, is, it was carried is, out by an individual, not a faith, not a culture, not a ethnicity, but an individual person who is gripped by an ideology that is not supported here by anyone. Yeah, no, it's, um, I, 
That's the difference between the two of them at the moment. And uh, what I can't quite work out is why the grown-ups in the National Party haven't tried to bang a few heads together. Because they have a risk here. There's a, because, of course, there's no obvious successor and no one wants the hospital pass. They're all going to look at each other for another couple of yeah, years, well, lose again badly, and then look at each other for another couple of years. And, well, I think they're twice been thrice shown in the National yeah. Party. Sorry, I changed the leadership soon. But and I think you're right, certain point. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because someone's got to want it. Someone's got to pull the trigger. And there isn't an obvious um, successor in the way that John Key came up. He came in 2005 six, five or six five, mm. and was leader within three years. Everyone mm. talks about Christopher Luxon. He's been there mm. for a year and a half. And I don't see the same mm. trajectory even in that short period yeah, well, I think he was so he came in in the 02 intake and then oh, was quickly finance spokesperson I think that's where he really I think that's where Luxon's probably Luxon probably needs that, that intermediary step I think where he has a high profile portfolio so to introduce himself as a parliamentarian and as a politician which I it's interesting that um, Judith Collins hasn't um, given him one of those big portfolios yet he's had local government but now wait for it he just got reshuffled onto the finance and expenditure committee this week ah, so good. keep your eyes peeled because yeah, that's yeah. a high profile committee for someone like white lux and he's got yeah. a name to make for himself and, and, and there isn't exactly a, 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 a um top tier performance going on the finance um well no uh, it's maybe it's nicola willis and chloe swarbrick have been leading the charge on house prices and i think they've actually been doing a really good job of it but the rest of the committee's been a bit quiet barbara Edmonds does quite a good job which is really circumscribed by being government on the government side of things so she does she's a she's got a real on the shoulders and, and is, is really leading a leading quite a lot of good kind of government questioning there but she really doesn't get to flex her muscles i think she, when you are on the government side it's, it's, it's much harder to do that. But Chloe Swarbrick is, is Nicola's, Nicola Willis has been reshuffled off that committee. She, Luxon has taken her place on that committee, which is, I think, a few people raise their eyebrows there because Willis has been doing a good job on the house price stuff there, particularly against the Reserve Bank. But the, so the other issue for National Right is, is Chloe Swarbrick is clearly the one on finance and expenditure committee who's really, she's really running there. And you wouldn't want as the National Party, the party that, that has this sort of economic reputation that they love to, to talk about so much. It'd be pretty embarrassing for them if, if the Green Party steals it from them in the Finance and Expenditure Committee. That's not that's the last thing the National Party would want to its reputation. But the Greens are actually they're on that committee talking a lot of sense. They're trying um, to some of those making good arguments about it's the, the big kind of hey, it's the monetary policy that's messing up the economy. It's the monetary policy that's causing this crazy house price inflation that's really screwing with the social aspects of the economy. So why don't we up the fiscal stimulus? so that we have an excuse to sort of tamp down on the monetary stimulus. Now, that, that makes a lot of intuitive sense to people, except for when you mention the taxation. Except for homeowners. <laughs> what are you doing, Thomas? What are you doing breaking, trying to put clothes back on that naked person? <laughs> I mean, I just want my house prices to go up. I want my interest rates to stay low. And I don't want the government out there spending lots of money and pushing up interest rates. It's all about keeping my house prices rising yeah. by pushing down on interest rates. And Chloe can make all the noise she wants, but as a national party, they're not going to go out there and say, yes, I want house prices to fall. <laughs> <laughs> no, way. That's the problem. Well, I do think they need someone on that committee to make a counter-argument because the National Party, it would be a massive dent to their pride if the Greens walk away from that committee on top. And at the moment, it's pretty, once Nicola, who's the good, the good counterbalance to Chloe, once Nicola's gone, then, then it's winning. It's, it's, there's no, the Greens have, have got it stitched up. And I think to, there's a certain like sector of Wellington society, which is like, the Greens have been talking since on the economy for quite some time. But I think to, to wider New Zealand, it would come as a massive shock that 
the Greens are uh, coming at Trump's on financing expenditure because I don't think the economic issues that the, that the wider public associates with the Greens. But the there's prob- no question that they're on that candidate and they're there to win. So I think yeah. certainly whoever does Luxon's filling Nicholas' uh, shoes on that, so whoever, yeah, he probably needs to, to, to up, it, up the game of the National Party on that committee pretty fast because you they do not, the National Party has lost a lot they cannot lose their economic reputation because they can be finished. <laughs> yeah, and it's a problem for Judith Collins because her best performers in Parliament, aside from her, you could say, are Chris Bishop, Nicola Willis and Erica Stanford, all of all of whom um, have been effectively, well, not demoted, all of them, but <laughs> certainly, not, certainly not promoted. And that's going to be a problem for them in the long term. Hey, I've kept you no, way longer than I expected. Because what I've done is I've ordered rams and it's my level. If you're an Aucklander, stop listening now. Because this will be poison to your ears. But I've, I've ordered rams and I just got a notification on my phone that they're outside. So I was just looking. Oh, good, good. Perfect I timing. My chilli oil dumplings, which is the best thing in Wellington. I'm sorry, Auckland. Thank you. I'm really sorry, but that's the case. I'm having rams tonight. I'm not sorry. Thank you again. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you very much, Thomas. Wonderful uh, chat, and uh, we'll do it again in a month or so. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Cheers. Bye-bye.